Hello, this is Genoa. And it's Yusuf. And this is In Flight Entertainment. Entertainment. And boy, do we have a good one today for all you boys and girls. Uh, And to talk about this gem of a film, we have a very special guest, a recurring guest, actually. We have Philip. Introduce yourself, Philip. My name's Philip. <laughs> I have seen Darkman many, many, many times. It is a big movie for me. And Sam Raimi is a big, big deal for me. I was telling Genoa earlier that I have a cat named Raimi. <laughs> wow. Yeah, don't get any better than that, man. <laughs> uh, of course, so we're talking about the first original. Uh, 1990 release, Dark Man. Yes. Yes. A classic, not the show. You have the synopsis for for this one, uh, General? Yeah, yeah. Uh, IMDb is really cheap on this one. Uh, Single sentence, a brilliant scientist left for dead returns to exact revenge on the people who burned him alive. I mean, that that is what happens. I mean, yeah. yeah. It's simple. simple. But they don't mention the skin part. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I want you to watch the movie for like that. Depth yeah. Story. Well, I mean, that's. The, I mean, Dark Man is sort of an interesting point in Sam Raimi's career, right? Because, I mean, it's his first. I mean, like this movie is super over the top. Like in most, by most standard, by most standards, <laughs> it is super over the top. But for Sam, but by Sam Raimi's standards <laughs> of yeah. the time. It was, in fact, this is his most grounded human story. Yes. Yes. It's an interesting thing to consider because, I mean, because the only movies that he had made at this point were obviously Evil Dead, which is, you know, basically like past the like the opening like couple of minutes, basically just becomes a bunch of bad shit happens to this guy. And like the last and like the last third of that movie is basically dialogue free, just him getting wailed on by various spirits of his loved ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and for people that don't remember Evil Dead, that's the movie where the guy replaces the arm with a chainsaw. No, it is not. Wait, that's the second one. That's, that's second Evil one. Dead Two: Dead by Dawn. In Evil Dead, he mainly uses an axe. Using an axe. And these are very different movies. Also, yeah. Evil Dead is actually a horror movie. Uh, yeah, Evil Dead Two is less. It's a com- comedy. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. A horror comedy. Yes. It, it, okay. It, at least it either invented. You could argue that it either invented or at the very least codified the horror comedy. Because people say like, ah, Abbott and, so, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein invented the horror comedy. I'm like, yeah, okay, but that's it's a comedy. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't gory. All right. So and then also in his um, uh, filmography. Uh, was this less known film called Crime Wave, which yeah. I only seen once, and I'm I'm trying to hunt this movie down because I can't find it. You can watch it for free on Tubi. Oh, so Tubi? Oh, okay, good. At least it was like in the past, like at least a month ago or something like that. Okay, yes. And also, there's a Shout Factory disc of it, I think, that's got a Bruce Campbell commentary, and uh, yeah, and that movie has the interesting distinction of being co-written by the Coen brothers. Rose, yeah. <laughs> and it has been effectively disowned by both Raimi and the Coen brothers. 
because of the uh, because of the troubles with post production and the uh, and financiers on that movie. But if you watch that movie, it actually kind of rules. Like it's not a, <laughs> it's definitely not a glittering perfect object, but there's a lot of cool shit in there. It's just, mm-hmm. but again, it's also very much not a, like that. It that is a, that is a movie that that is a live action cartoon. Like it has cartoon logic in a human space, which is what's really interesting about it. You know, because I always like stuff where that happens, like the Robert Altman Popeye or whatever. You know, oh yeah, just I love stuff it. like or, or Scott Pilgrim, just where they take those, where they just where that's that's the goal. It's like this is that's you know, it's like somebody gets hit on the head with a frying pan, and you know, like they don't <laughs> die, and they just. <laughs> Yeah, and they and they're too, you know, and, and they just get piano teeth or whatever, you know. Like that's obviously that doesn't happen in crime wave specifically, but a lot of stuff like like that happens. Right. I, I've never heard of this movie before, but it's, it's also on Plex. I don't, Plex, okay. Yeah, yeah. but it's yeah, give it a watch. <laughs> yeah, that that's one that you know, like they ended up shooting like a weird framing device for that movie where he's you know about to be you know he's getting sent to the electric chair and he's just going, you know, and he's uh, getting dragged along and they're like, ah, you know, like, Hey, you know, I got to explain. Like, it's just, you know, if you just listen to me, this is what happened. Like I didn't murder all those people. And, <laughs> and then it, you know, flashes back to all this stuff, which, you know, which that was a, that was a mandate from the, uh, the studio. And it, you know, is probably correct because if you actually, because just considering, you know, like watching the movie as it is, and then seeing, imagining if it just started without that stuff, it would make mm-hmm. no goddamn sense. It's just, oh, yeah, totally. it's, yeah, it's also, I mean, and, and actually after rewatching, um, rewatching, uh, army of darkness, I came to the <clears throat> conclusion that I parallel the evil dead trilogy to the mad max trilogy. I mean, exclude, excluding, excluding Fear Okay. Let me tell you why, because you know, um, Evil Dead was like the first kind of jump off point of this world. You're establishing kind of like this craziness in this world, right? And the Rogue Warrior slash Evil Dead 2 is arguably like the best of the entries, right? Yes. And Thunderdome slash Army of Darkness is like the movies that got, that was like the bigger budget, had bigger scope, but it wasn't what the fans expected um, a little bit. It was a bit, it was very commercial. Like totally, they're both lighter, lighter, much lighter. Yes. So that's how I parallel those. Two. I mean, that, yeah, those overlay basically really well because, like, even you know, because those are the both you know, like those are the self financed ones initially. You know, like yeah. because uh, I mean, George Miller was a doctor. You know, he was like a he was a, yeah he worked in an ER in mm-hmm. Australia at the time. And then he wrangled up the movie by the money for the movie, I think by just commissioning, like just some of his, you know, more well-to-do friends and his, you know, his doctor buddies and <laughs> Sam Raimi got the money for evil dead by mainly going around and asking dentists for money. Very much. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I need to start doing. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it like, that's the thing. Like as far, you know, like they're in Michigan, you know, it's like who they have, who has some sort of, who, you know, does pretty well and has, you know, like, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, pretty chill and just wants to have some sort of, you know, fluid income. And it's like, yeah, apparently dentists, dentists are the ones <laughs> who are like, yeah, like I make enough. I'm willing to, you know, to, to bet 
to bet like, uh, you know, like two grand on you, on you kids. <laughs> exactly. Just did that uh, yeah. people. And then, yeah. And then obviously it's, you know, became sort of a cult sensation. And then the next one was, well, I mean, cause the only difference is then that, uh, you know, he made a uh, road warrior right after that. And obviously prime wave is in between. And, you know, like, right. so like evil dead two is actually the movie where he's, where Sam Raimi is licking his wounds because, <laughs> yeah, because crime wave was such uh was such a shit show for all involved. And they're like, so like, you know, cause that's the thing. Cause that was, cause you know, despite being known as a horror guy, Sam Raimi would not, qualify himself as a horror guy necessarily, at least not at that time, you know? And I, cause you know, the evil dead was a mercenary decision. That was, they just wanted to make something that they thought could sell. But, you know, obviously Sam Raimi being like, you know, Captain Slapstick was like, he just wanted to make his weird gonzo comedy. And that's what crime wave was. And then it could be argued that because crime wave failed, that's the reason why Evil Dead 2 became so comedic because he took all that energy that, you know, he got fucked with by the studio on on Evil Dead, you know, on Crime Wave and then sort of put that into Evil Dead 2 to make that kind of movie that he wanted to make beyond, yeah, beyond just a simple horror movie again, because like, again, that's not really his thing exactly. Like, because the thing about Sam Raimi that ties into this and ties into dark man and ties into the previous movie that I talked about on this podcast, you know, cause uh, for those who don't know, I was here previously talking about uh, face off and mm-hmm. also a bit of a, you know, with a bit of an overarching, you know, notice into, into John Woo's career, which does actually dovetail with Sam Raimi's a little bit, about three years after this, but also with, uh, with, uh, with a hard target, but, Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> because yeah, because uh, Sam Raimi was actually the studio. He was the guy who was brought on by the studio. He was producer on that movie, and he was actually brought on by the studio and said. And they were saying that if he, that if John Woo was fucking up, then it was Sam Raimi's job to come in and then take the movie over from him. Which of course Sam Raimi was never going to fucking do. No, <laughs> it's like it's your show, man. Do do, do what you need to do. Yeah, uh, no, so, yeah, and that's the thing, because yeah, so he basically just insulated Wu from the studio. Uh, uh, and, so, and, and he had gone through what yeah, the exactly. studio could do because of crime wave. Yeah, uh, and then after like on Evil Dead, working out his his therapy from what he experienced on Crime Wave, he got to do Dark Man. Yes, because yes. Evil Dead was then in fact a big success, at least relatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for the De Laurentiis company. And well, so the thing that Raimi wanted to do was he wanted to do the shadow. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I wish he could have done the shadow because that would have been amazing. I mean, it definitely would have been, but I mean, and a, like the Russell Mulcahy shadow is a movie that, you know, like I have a fondness for like, yeah, obviously oh. not, great but it's got a great cast and it's like you know yeah, yeah. it looks beautiful the set design is amazing yeah, the like, cinematography was great yeah it was exactly. a solid movie yeah it's like and again like russell mckay you know like visual stylist he did uh what's that movie with john lithgow and um fucking denzel washington 
Oh, uh, Ricochet. Ricochet. Yeah. So he yes. did Ricochet and he did uh, Razorback, which is, you know, the best Jaws knockoff starring a, a giant <laughs> killer boar. Uh, and he did the Highlander movies. But so he and, and he did a lot of music videos. So he's got like so he's got, you know, he's got an eye. So it's like you can't, you know, like you can't discount it. It's just that that the script for that movie doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. But it's. But whatever, it's pretty good. But the fact of the matter is Raimi's would have been better. But I digress. But the good thing about this is that because Raimi didn't get the shadow, we got it's the Star Wars thing. You know, it's like the reason that Star Wars exists is because George Lucas couldn't get the rights to Buck Rogers. You know, like the reason that Dark Man exists is because he couldn't get the rights to the shadow. So he's like, well, God damn it. I'm going to make my version of the shadow. And it's the same sort of thing because it's like, I don't know if you remember what the shadow's name is. The shadow's name is Lamont Cranston, you know? So just, uh, yeah. so just a super ornate name, Lamont Cranston, Peyton Westlake, same number of syllables, same, <laughs> same like weird sort of snootiness. Uh, same, you know, like same sort of, you know, grim pedigree, you know, based on, based on the thirties pulps. Mm-hmm. And yeah. wait, so the, the movie came out before the comic, which comic, the dark, did it, wasn't, wasn't there, was there not a comic? There, no, there was no dark man. This is a, no, there is no dark man comic. Right. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Sam Remy actually wrote a short yeah. story about a guy who, yeah, about a guy who could change his face. Face, right. And then that was the original basis for it. But yeah, and Dark and, and the Shadow, you know, was, and this was all part, and, and, and sort of the reason that this happened in the first place, you know, it was like because of just that particular odd moment in time in, you know, after 1989, after, 1989, after Batman happened. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But studios didn't, want to make a bunch of movies about superheroes. They wanted to make a, mo- a bunch of movies based on with like art deco stuff based on thirties pulp adventures. That's what they took from the success of Batman, just because I guess because of Burton cinematography, you know, just because of the yeah. vibe that Burton brought to it. So then that just brought in this weird wave, which I really loved. And I, and I really miss, I, I wish we would still of just like, yeah. Cause it's like, cause there was, because there was that, there was Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy. Yep. Yeah, there was the Shadow, and there was the Phantom. Oh, uh, so the reason why well, let's I'm not forget confused. the Rocketeer. Oh yes, and the Rocketeer. The reason why I'm confused is because on the Wikipedia Wikipedia page for Dark Man, uh, apparently Marvel Comics published a three issue adaptation of Dark Man. I mean, yeah, but that would be really? 1990. Yeah, like after was, the fact. It was a- after the movie. Oh, okay. Marvel released uh, three issues, and then in '93 they released six issues, and then in 2006, Dynamite Entertainment did a crossover between Darkman and Sam Remy's Ash Williams. Of the uh, nice. <laughs> well, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, that's a, yeah, totally. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, so. Let's get into this particular thing, right? All right. 
So this movie, uh, well, it stars Liam Neeson before he was, before he he was saving yeah. his daughter and taken. He was mm-hmm. saving his girlfriend, uh, Francis McDermott. Julie, <laughs> which is it, like it blows my mind that that that's Francis McDermott in this movie because that's not how I. I they were roommates. Oh my God. That's funny. <laughs> and the Coens and Holly Hunter all lived in the same house in Silver Lake and Raimi. That's yeah. crazy. Right. And it makes so much sense that, you know, like most of those people are in Coen Brothers films, right? Yeah. 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 And, uh, and Ethan Cohen, it, well, it was either Ethan or Joel. One of them was an assistant editor on The Evil Dead. So that's how they met. Mm. And then. And then the Coens took some inspiration from Raimi about how Raimi financed the evil dead and used that to help them finance blood simple. Mm-hmm. And then they, and then they, you know, became buddies and they all moved into a wacky house in Silver Lake, which I want that sitcom. <laughs> that <would be> awesome. <laughs> just, of just all those weirdos just hanging out. Just in the, like, that's a lot of people in one house too. But yeah. that is a lot of people in one house. How many bedrooms was it? And how many bathrooms is, I want to know. I don't know. Agreed. That I needs mean, to be uh, a sitcom. I mean, it was the eighties. So it was probably <laughs> definitely more affordable. Yeah. Not, not uh, that many. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of uh, people were occupying, occupying the floors, couple of couches. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just yeah, sleeping in the bathtub. Whatever. Yeah, just a weird collective that is. But uh, but yeah, so that's why she's in this movie because he pushed for her because she was, you know, because she was just a buddy of his, you know? And yeah, and she she doesn't necessarily come off as, I mean, in my mind, I would never think of Fran- Frances McDermott as the actress that plays like a damsel in distress, but that's sort of her character in this. Well, I mean, oh, yeah, fun thing, fun thing. Um, actually, Julia Roberts was going to be cast as Julia in the film, <laughs> but she but she took Pretty Woman. Well, also she and Neeson had dated, and uh, and apparently when they were in the uh, like when they were in the auditions together, apparently they both got super emotional and started crying and stuff. And I guess they thought it was too much. <laughs> <laughs> she thought it was too much, and she sort of withdrew. But it would have been it probably would have been good because, you know, because Frances McDormand, by her own admission, did not really like working on this movie. She was like, this yeah. is not my this is not like like you were saying. She's like, I like this is not the sort of thing that Frances McDormand generally does. And it's like and she thinks so, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like turns out right well, to say. <laughs> I, I don't want to be a damsel and I don't want you to shove your camera into my face, Sam. <laughs> Because again, Sam Raimi, you know, being Sam, you know, Sam Raimi is like, this is my, you know, it's like, I want to cast my friend who's a real actress who at this point is a, uh, is an Academy Award nominee, I believe. Uh, I think she, yeah, I think for Best Supporting Actress or something. For, yeah, I believe so. For Mississippi Burning or something like that. I don't, yeah. 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 I got to check. I got to check. That. <laughs> but, I'll yeah. But anyway. so she had done that, but. And, you know, Neeson had been in fucking Next to Kin. <laughs> but he was whoa, 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 whoa. Excalibur. Was he? Oh, yeah. Well, that's yeah, yeah. yeah, that's a small <laughs> part of it. Like, but he had never been, like, because, yeah, so, like, in Next of Kin, he's, you know, he's uh, Swayze's brother, you know, 
the hillbilly yeah. in Chicago. Yeah. But because uh, yeah, I don't know if you ever seen Next of Kin, but uh Yes, because it's filmed in Chicago, so I watched it. He's the hill I just remember Chicago. like them like running on top of the L trains. It's a good bet. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good sequence. But uh but yeah, but again, so the thing is so yeah, Raimi co-wrote this movie with his brother, Ivan, who is a doctor and who is in the movie. He is in he's one of the doctors in the sequence when they uh Examining uh yeah, when when uh Jenny Agator uh, is sticking people with pins, there's a guy who sort of looks like <laughs> Sam Raimi, and that's Ivan Raimi. You know, like they have the same eyes that looks perma uh you know perma bags. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh uh so okay. So this movie came out in 1990. Um okay, my memory of this film, uh me and my father. We went to see this movie opening weekend. I think it was a Saturday matinee or something like that. And, you know, coming off of like the high of Batman the, the, the year before, things like that. You know, I was thinking, oh, okay, cool. Like it looks a little dark with Dark Man, maybe Batman, you know. Uh, <laughs> I see, you know, like it was such kind of a, like a sensory overload watching the movie because. Yeah, like a Danny Elfman score kind of like gave it a familiarity of like, okay, this is a, this is a comic book kind of feel to this movie, even though it's you know dark, you know, brooding gothic, whatever. Um, and just the like the rim, the, the Sam Riminess of it, I think that's what introduced me to him through this movie, Dark Man in 1990. I mean, probably like that's like. This might be the first Raimi movie that I ever saw. I mean, the first yeah. movie that I ever heard of was Evil Dead 2. Because when I was right. a kid, my dad described Evil Dead 2 <laughs> to me. And I yeah. thought, nope. that, I thought, no, it's just like, I thought he had made it up. Because I was like, no, they don't let you make movies that are that rad. Like, I, like, I did not think, you know, it's like he described like, so this guy... You know, his hand goes crazy and starts trying to kill him. So he takes a chainsaw and cuts his hand off. And then he puts the chainsaw where his hand was. And I'm like, mm -hmm. that's the greatest movie that that's ever existed. There's no way that that's like, you know, like they don't, you know, like, cause, you know, it's like, I mean, my favorite movie at that point is what? The Secret of Nim, which I love, but it's like, yeah. you know, like, but this is what movies are. I, you know, <laughs> I, I think and I'm like, they just don't let you do stuff like that. Like, like they just don't let movies, you know, they don't let stuff be that cool. Nope, not anymore. So, so yeah, it was Mississippi Burning that she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress in '88. Oh, nice. Yeah, <laughs> and also I had no idea that she was married to Joel Cohen. For some reason, I just have—I guess I never thought about her personal That's life. Why she was in so many of them damn movies. <laughs> I just thought he liked her because she's a good actress. Yep, but the yeah, he, no, he wooed her on the set of uh, of. Uh, well, not raising Arizona. No, the first one. Uh, Blood Temple. Oh, Blood Temple. Yeah. <laughs> although they actually, although Raimi actually wanted Holly Hunter to be in uh, in Evil Dead Two, the the role of Bobby Joe was written for her. Ah, that would be interesting. But then the producer <laughs> Scott Spiegel was like, "We want somebody hotter." <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord. Okay, so all right, back, 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 getting back. Getting yeah. back. So the opening sequence, the opening sequence of this movie, like 
in everything you want, everything you will want. It, it sets the tone perfectly the first three minutes or less of this film before we, you know, go into uh, Remy's opening credit sequence over Danny Elfman's awesome like score. Well, I think the smoke happens first, right? Yeah. It happens first, and like universal a little Renaissance pictures thing, and then there's like a, a little bit of a, you know, <laughs> and then it kind of, and then it goes into the the harbor. Yes, yes the exactly. Which you know reminds me of the warehouse shootout from Hard Boiled, but this is two years before Hard Boiled came out. <laughs> so, yeah, but, you know, talking about that cross pollination with you know him and Wu back when you know they were, you know, like they were mutual admirers, I guess. Cause it's yeah. like, but I, cause you know, before I even really considered the timeline about it, I'm just like, man, it's just, you know, like this must be like uh, inspired by hard boiled. It's like, wait, no, wait, it's not. Nope. <laughs> it's not possible. So hard boiled was fired by the warehouse. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But it's the same, but you know, like, and the thing about the warehouse sequence is that, you know, it's great because it's so crazy. Like the like, cause like the guy, like, I don't remember what the guy's name is. Like the big boss guy, you know, uh, yeah. you know, deep voice, deep voice man. Yeah, yeah. Tell him I said fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, had to bring it off. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, you know, because he's like, I got, you know, we got a surprise for these guys, and presumably that means the bit that later on, after you know, guy pulls machine gun leg. And they start and shit starts going wild. Those, you know, his surprise are the cars that start exploding out of containers with two back <laughs> tens just firing. But I don't know how they, you know, like what scenario they imagined where they thought that that would be helpful. Uh, who knows? Yeah, I mean, world, who knows? Uh, well, exactly. Yeah. That's the, you know, because like that's the because like this because I mean, like I think that this is a weird opening sequence for this movie specifically because it's like. I mean, basically this, this, you know, this opening coming so hard, basically, because what happens is, you know, Durant, crime boss with his, his weird little motley crew of guys. One's Ted Raimi. One's the dude who, the dude from uh, Evil Dead 2 who, uh, yeah. who, you know, comes in with it, with his overalls. Mm-hmm. He's got a wooden leg that has a machine gun in it. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, and they're in the yeah, yeah, and, and, the and then there's uh, there's a little turf war, you know, with with some gangsters, and they, and they you know say like, and they and it's just very con- cartoony shot where all they drop all their weapons, you know, just like brass knuckles and shit. <laughs> I feel, so so I feel like so because Batman came out in '89, yes, um, and that sort of set the stage for you could do sort of all these bad guys meeting together and it being comical, weird. And so the intro to this movie sort of, I was like, oh, of course. Yeah, but, <laughs> but the thing about it is that, you know, like that is that it just gives Durant such a weird importance in the movie. It does. Yes. Like, because it's like, cause, you know, yeah. cause that's the thing, like this opening sequence is why there's a sequel called The Return of Durant. That's what I posit. <laughs> it's like, yeah, actually, you know. Because Durant is, you know, like the bad guy or whatever, but he's not like the bad guy. He's yeah, yeah. he's not the big boss. Yeah, like he's just a fucked up guy. Yeah. But he's not, you know, and he's not even in the movie that much. He's just, you know, like he's, you know, he's you're dealing with his goons for a while, but like this is like a 90 minute movie. It doesn't, you know, like he right. I mean, 
But he just he, has he, such a good, clean opening that makes him seem like such a thing. Cause he's like, he just, cause him and his cigar cutter thing yeah. is just one of the fantastic. Yeah, it's it sticks just, with you. It's in, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's incredible. And you know, like every line is like just really, really tight, you know, just like it just really snaps. Just the whole thing of like, you know, just the whole thing of I, I got five more fingers to go or whatever. No, I have no, I have seven more points yeah. to make. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just, but and also, you know, it's like because again, like so that's what's weird about this because you know, because it just gives this movie this big overarching tone, but it doesn't really, but it sets the stage for like Dark Man 2. Yeah, exactly. But it just it doesn't really feel like it sets up this movie, really. It's like, you know, like these guys doing this shit, you know, like, what does that have to do with anything? Yeah, well, I, I feel like Durant is, if you're not actually paying attention to the movie and just sort of having it on in the background and you look up every once in a while, you think Durant is the big boss until the last scene of the movie where all of a sudden Lewis Strack Jr. is the one that's yeah. Mm-hmm. Controlling yeah. everything. Right. The big baddie. And I think I, I'm going to say this is kind of purpose, just to your point of saying like how like Batman was back in, you know, uh, 90, you know, what the bat, the, like Batman 89 was, well, it started off with the, the family and then uh, like those robbers like robbed that family and then they on the rooftop count the money and then enter Batman. And Batman shows up. Doesn't, huh? doesn't, but then doesn't Batman show up? That's what I'm saying. Like, th- like after they robbed that family, right? Because yeah, they're like, on the rooftop exactly. counting the money, and then you see Batman. Yeah, exactly. But that's used to intro Batman. That's what I'm saying. That, but, th- but that's what I'm saying. What I like about this movie, it subverts that. It's yeah. like we kind of dropping in on these group of like bad people. It's like, okay, where where do these people fit in this movie? And then after the credit sequence, then where we are? We at the lab with the main character, and it's more of a lighter a little more hopeful, a little more optimistic uh, sequence of like, oh, we're trying to build something, we're trying to create. Opposite, we just seen some people just like destroy yeah. shit. Um, so, but, so that was a good but, juxtaposition. But but question for you, do you think that they filmed it thinking that they would show Colin Friel's Lewis Star- Strack as like the big, big baddie throughout, but Larry Drake does such an amazing job playing a creepy ass villain that they're like, whatever, we'll keep showing. Yeah, you know that. what? I see, I, I always see Durant as a Clarence Vonnegut character of this movie in the in Robocop, right? Everybody thought Clarence Vonnegut yeah. was like the man, right? But it was actually uh-huh. the OCP corporate dude, Dick Jones, yeah. that was the puppet master. Right. Yeah. But you, but yeah, but you're introduced to Dick Jones earlier. I mean, apparently like, so like this, this movie also like crime wave has sort of a naughty post-production history that, (laughs) that we're going to need to get into. But like at one point, apparently there was a scene like after after the scene where he and Julie, you know, we're jumping ahead here, but whatever Uh, the scene where he, Louis Strack Jr. You know, takes Julie to the dance or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's like, he seems like he's an okay guy. Uh, like, there was apparently a scene where he goes home and then, uh, you know, where, is wearing a robe, takes a, a wooden box out, dumps it on his bed. It's full of gold coins. There are all these. So then he takes 
Then he takes his robe off. He's naked. And then he jumps around and then he jumps onto the pile of gold coins and starts rolling around. So you're like, okay, this guy's a nut job. <laughs> that was apparently Bruce Campbell's favorite scene in the movie. And he's really pissed off. Uh, of course it was. Yeah. But that was supposed to let you know that, you know, like that guy is not on the level uh, mm. before the, before the big, you know, Durant reveal. But yeah. So, you know, it's just, Cause you know, that see, that whole sequence is just so arresting and it's like, it just takes, it takes a minute for the rest of the movie to sort of dovetail into that. But again, it just, but it just, again, it's just like Durant's thing is so clean that it just makes it feel like he's more of a deal than he is. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Which is interesting. I'm not necessarily saying that it's a, you know, like it's a big problem, but it's just like, it's not, but as far as, you know, it's like, but it's not clean. But that's but that's okay because I would never say that Sam Raimi is quote unquote the cleanest filmmaker. You know, it's like things are you know things in his movies can be bumpy. You know, and yeah. that's part of the charm of them. Mm-hmm. Like, oh uh, shit, I don't know what I was going to say. <laughs> 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 but like, because and and again, like, and that and the good thing about the opening scene is that it lets you very much know that the guy who made, you know, Evil Dead 2 made this movie, despite the fact that this is, you know, the opening of an action movie, which this movie isn't really. But uh, that's the other thing. It makes, the, it makes it look like the opening of a Schwarzenegger movie or something, which it doesn't, which the rest of the movie isn't, you know, really into. That's not the movie's vibe. Right. But, uh, like, and it does that whole thing with the intermittent push-ins, which, like, Raimi's the only guy who does that. You know? Totally. Yeah. Where it's like, because it's like he dumps like, it, because you know, yeah, on the guy when the guy's getting his fingers cut off, you know, it dollies in once, and then you know he gives his next line, it dollies in again, <laughs> and then he gives his next line, and it dollies in a third time. He does uh, that both sides of the coverage, but just for yeah. you know, but it's just super arch, and just really you know, and just really really exaggerated and overstated. So the good thing about it is that it lets you know sort of what the movie's deal is in terms like visually. It lets mm-hmm. you know which you would not get from the scene of, you know, Peyton Westlake just doing, you know, doing lab stuff. But, but in any case, so yes, you get, you know, there's some, there's some murders. Uh, a guy cuts a guy's fingers off with a cigar cutter. You're like, man, this guy's a bad dude. And then you go to the main titles, Danny Elfman, you know, very good. Uh, you know, Danny Elfman, very good at making a theme that sounds like the character, whatever that means. I don't know, but yeah. it worked, but yeah. it's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, he was on a roll. He was like, oh, Batman, I'll take that. Darkman, I'll take that. Oh, you guys do it, Dick Tracy? Yeah, I can do that, too. I mean, he was just, yeah. Oh, you don't remember the score for Dick Tracy? That was the most Danny Elfman score ever. I mean, I watched it a bunch in the 90s, but I have not seen it since then. I have not seen Dick Tracy in like 20 years. Yeah, yeah. what, Dick Tracy came out in 90 or 91? I think it was 91, I want to say. Yeah, so yeah, he was was on a roll with action comic type movies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, and then we're introduced to Peyton Westlake. I really like that shot of the nose. I like how it, you know, like when it is, you know, like the, the like the, the, the viewfinder, you know, on the nose, how like it has that thing where the nose bit is in focus and the rest of it is focusing. I'm like, did cameras ever do that? I don't remember that being a thing, but like, 
but I always, but that's something that I always remember from the first time seeing it. Like that's, that's cool. I like, I like that. How did it do that? Yeah. yeah so, that, so pretty much they were ahead of the whole 3d printer concept before we, you know, started getting into that. Right. Yeah, that's kind of true. Yeah. But it's, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> that's kind of kind of what they were doing except with skin. Yeah, that, they print stuff, they print hands in 3D. That's what they do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's this guy, Peyton Westlake, with his lab assistant. They are in a lab and they are trying to make synthetic skin that uh for burn victims, which in Dark Man 3, sorry, Dark Man <laughs> Die. The event, you know, that's his final act is that he uses the one vial of, you know, of skin that will not dissolve in 99 minutes to, you know, put onto to the face of some kid, you know, and then he's like, oh, man, I got to figure it out again. Some other because they destroyed my research. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so that's a setup for that. But they don't know it yet. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so they have this skin, which for whatever reason is, you know, is known to dissolve after exactly 99 minutes which is a very specific time, which I enjoy. Well, and, and also, like, doesn't he figure that out by dressing up as a, the fat, bald dude and timing it? No, it was always the 99 minutes. It's been okay. 99 minutes, okay. like, sit, like it's, it's been 99 minutes for when we're introduced to them. That's just the thing that they can't get past. Yeah, they, yeah, they can't pass that okay. 99 minutes. Right. right, but then right before the right before Durant and his people broke in, they found out that it lasts longer at night. It don't in the dark, which is what. Yeah, that's another thing about that. The economy of this movie that basically, like you're saying, that basically happens right after that, like yeah. immediately after, which always sort of you know always never really sat right with me because I'm like <laughs> it's a microscope. <laughs> There's light shining through it. We can see it on the slide. If it, if there was no light in the microscope, you would not be able to fucking see it. Also, so, so I'm like that. You know, like what, like what dark? There is a light shining directly through these fucking skin cells that you're looking at, you asshole. Like it's like this, that doesn't make any goddamn. They're like daylight. See? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you never specify that. Yeah, they never say it's UV rays. They just say the light. <laughs> Remy semantics, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the thing. It's like those those skin cells are just stock footage, I believe. You know, like they they didn't film anything for that. They didn't, you know. <laughs> so it's like we don't. We you know, it's like it's not CG. We can't have you know like skin cells in the dark that we can see somehow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> had to spend that budget on something, but <laughs> yeah. Yes, which was a relatively small budget, all things considered. Yeah, or a movie like this with so many explosions, but uh, yeah. So we meet these guys. They do, you know. We learned about the ninety-nine minute thing. Uh, he is Liam Neeson is there. His American accent is not quite perfect. His voice sounds a little weird. Yeah, I mean, you know, he but he's got that whole sort of Oshucks G Wiz Sam Raimi thing going. You know, yeah. I I do have to say that like I don't think I've seen this since the the early. Really, I don't think I've seen this movie since the 90s, in all honesty. Um, but I totally blocked the fact that both Liam Neeson and Francis McDermott were in this movie. The only two people that have stuck in my head for this movie are Larry Drake and... Um, the bald guy? The bald guy, yeah. <laughs> uh, Polly. Yeah, Polly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Polly was a funny sequence. 
Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But yeah, because he's, but yeah, there's that, like, there's that, you know, when he's going around, he's like, how do we do this? We're smart guys. Like, <laughs> tissue rejection? We lick that. <laughs> like, he says licked, you know, it's so, it's so 50s. Yes, yes. It's, hey, he wanted to do the shadow. I'll keep that in mind. Well, that's the 30s, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it is. This, but I mean, again, but that's the overarching Sam Raimi sensibility. You know, that's the thing that bleeds through through all his weird, you know, his sort of weirdo sadism is just this, you know, sort of aw shucks, like, you know, like just this down home <laughs> kid sort of sort of vibe, which is what. And that's the other thing, you know, it's like because this movie has a really weird earnestness to it which is what like, it's really like, it's really, it's nakedly emotional in, you know, in a lot of ways, like it's really straightforward with it's, um, which is the interesting part about it because again, you know, like evil dead, evil dead Two, prime wave. These are not movies about human beings. Really. I mean, prime wave is a movie about cartoon is about cartoon people. There's a, you know, there's a central romance in it, but it's not, you know, but it's like, but the, it's not a, but it's, it's, you know, it's like, it's nothing to write home about, you know, people that too, Ash has his girlfriend, but it's like, he gives her that weird shitty necklace. And then, yeah. and, then he, and the next thing, you know, he cuts her head off and he feels bad about it, but that's not, you know, yeah. you know, I love it, Ash. Uh, <laughs> but this one is the first time that Raimi is attempting to be like, you know, like these are going to be people with emotions and feelings. You know, it's like they're gonna like they're gonna be human beings, sort of, and they're human beings in a very arch, you know, uh, radio drama, comic book sort of way. But they are, you know, like, but they, you know, like, so you could argue that they're thinly sketched, and I think that Francis McDormand probably would. But they're trying to, but he's it's actually him for the first time trying to actually be a little, you know, have a bit more humanity in it. Which that's why, you know, like this is an interesting experiment for him because despite the fact that he's got, you know, like all this, all the crazy camera shit going, it's like, you know, he's got a scene where he and a late, you know, where, you know, it's like, cause right after this, we are introduced to Francis McDormand, you know, it's like, and they, you know, they're in the scene where they're watching their old slides and they're just, you know, and then they make out. And then next morning, you know, like she gets coffee, we get the shot of the Belisarius memorandum, great name. With the coffee stain. Yeah, with the coffee stain, which has that big dolly in on the coffee stain with uh, a car with a Doppler horn, you know, under it to, to really emphasize, like, don't forget about this fucking coffee stain. Yeah, it's going to come back later. Yeah, but that's, but again, you know, like, you got to, uh, you know, you got to appreciate how, you know, how cleanly visual it is. Just, it does such a good job underlining that. But yeah, yeah, most get to that. And then the yeah. very next scene is him saying, like, hey, maybe we should get married. And she'd be like, I don't know, bro. Like, like, it's like, maybe, maybe not. Well, she's focused on her career. Yeah, she's focused on her career of being a lawyer or something. Yeah, but she, yeah she's a lawyer uh, because at the end of the movie, uh, one, I, I think Durant talks about how he's so excited to kill a lawyer. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So she's, and then, but yeah, so he says, like, maybe we should get married. She's like, so, so again, like, as far as like, you know, super, you know, it is not the most super romantic, uh, you know, scene that I have ever seen between these two people, you know, who are like, but again, so it's like, it's pretty thinly sketched, but it's still, you know, it's trying to establish a relationship between the two of them. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah, so it, 
it's very so yeah it's it's not the deepest romance that you've ever seen in, in a movie but that's but you know but it does prove that you can usually get uh it, it actually doesn't take that much because because yeah. whatever you know you want to say about it, it actually works for the most part but it's yeah, like totally. thing that it's just it's just these two scenes and then the very next scene is her you know going to lewis strack's office and him saying like you know like bribes Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a cool office which if you watch that scene you know because the interesting you know because like if you watch that scene it has like really good old school blocking in it you know just really making use of the space of that office in a way yeah. that you really appreciate but feels very different from you know like the two like the scenes that were before this you know it's like because the first scene was like super over the top crazy you know crazy push-ins which is you know obviously a sam raimi hallmark then the next scene is pretty normal coverage sort of stuff then mm-hmm. you know then the scene with them you know on the couch which is mainly just you know one with like sort of a slow dolly pass yeah, and then this one is all you know like because he's there he's looking through his little model on the desk you know you know he starts out over on this side of the room he walks over there he looks over you know, at his model on the desk camera dolly's over to follow him back to talking to her when he's doing that thing about like, are you going to book me? But like, that's all one. And then when they, after they do that, then they go walk over there and sit on the couches and have their little tete-a-tete, you know? And it's like, it's really clean, classical sort of filmmaking, which I think, you know, he, I think he wanted to show that he could do that because again, you know, the previous you know, the, the previous movies that he did were so spit and gum, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to your point, what you were saying, you know, about his this being his film that actually displaying a main character that actually have an art, tragic art, of course, but just an art. I mean, you know, very Phantom of an Opera-ish type art, you know, like kind of like the tragic love story or the love story that, that was never to be at the end, right? Exactly. He accepted his fate as the monster. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely uh, Phantom of the Opera-esque. But if you, I mean, from my perspective, a lot of your comic book heroes become heroes because they lose uh, a partner or a parent, uh, a father figure. And so this one, we finally have it just you know, something bad happened to him. I got, I guess Dr. Strange is also something bad happens to him. And so that is the. Yeah. They took my hands. Yeah. They took my hands. <laughs> I love that scene. You know, like, cause again, like super melodramatic, but it's like, I, but you know, but I just, but he believes it, you know, like that's the good thing about Neeson in this. Like it's like, he's not, he's not half-assing it. He's like going all in on the like, Grand Guignol sort of, you know, like operatic, uh, yes, uh, like thirties, yeah. like universal monster, like, you know, cavernous emotion sort of thing. I mean, it, 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 the overall movie does sort of remind me a bit of the old Batman TV show. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly in the, the art deco sort of thing, but, uh, Bruce Tim one, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of Dutch angles, like uh, <laughs> old Batman. A lot of Dutch angles, yeah. And again, and you know, and the thing that I want to talk about is like, you know, like there's a lot of Slavko Borkovich in this movie, right? Yeah, uh, for for us non-film geeks, what is that? Okay, so Slavko Borkovich Borkovich was a uh, a montage editor and montage director 
in the Hollywood studio system back in the 20s and the 30s. So he so basically movies back in the day, they, you know, studio movies, the directors who made the normal movies did not direct the montages. Oh. They had a montage, they had a designated montage department at the studio. <laughs> and so so, you know, the guys would do their, you know, they would do the thing that, you know, they, they would do the stagey stuff with the people and the actors, everything, you know, doing all the dialogue and everything. And then the montage department would just go and shoot all the weird scenes of, you know, of newspapers going and doing shit or and like all the stuff with weird crossfades and everything and stuff flying. Past. So basically all of those scenes in the, the really expressionistic scenes where stuff is like flying past on the screen and like all the clocks and everything. Yeah. Basically. You know, those are techniques that are basically pioneered by this one sort of, uh, I believe he was Serbian guy who, uh, who did, yeah, who did just these weird sort of expressionistic montages. And I feel like, so there was a lot more of that sort of stuff in the movie, like, uh, because like, remember the bit where it jumps into his eye or like early mm. on and it does the whole thing where yeah, like, uh, light, like little lightning streets and all, all that the stuff. lightning and stuff. But the bit mm. like there's like one shot where he's a Jack in the box. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack in the box. He's going like this, you know, he's yeah. sort of like, so there was a lot more of that shit in the movie. And then like part of the thing about this movie is that they had, is that the, um, Sorry, carefully, you might hear a. There was a was that the studio hated all of that shit. Mm. So, but that was you know like again because Sam Raimi was trying to get into the heads of you know like this was the thing like he wanted to make a movie about a character and Sam Raimi being such a purely visual guy the way that he wanted to do that was to jump into his head and expressionistically show all of this stuff about how he is feeling so like. <laughs> So there was apparently a bit where like, you know, like everybody, like, you know, there was like, you know, everybody was marionettes and they were being puppeteered and stuff, you know, like this is, you know, this is according to Bill Pope. He says it on the commentary on the, uh, on the disc, uh, which this is Bill Pope's first movie, by the way. Nice. Nice. Who's who's Bill Pope? Bill Pope is the cinematographer of This movie, he shot uh, the Matrix. He shot the Matrix. He shot, uh, yeah, the Lita Battle Angel. The recent one. Yeah, he shot all three. uh, He shot Shang Chi. He shot uh, Spider Man two and three. He shot uh, Baby Driver. Shot Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Oh wow! He shot. Shot Team America. Yeah, so yeah. he's basically he got a lot of stuff. Cinematographers alive. Oh yeah, and he shot Bound too for the for the Chowskis. Yeah, yeah, he, he linked up with the Wachowskis like pretty early. Yeah, but yeah, this was his first. This was his first movie. He had done music videos and stuff, and uh, and I apparently, Ramey asked Barry Sonnenfeld for a recommendation, and I guess Sonnenfeld and uh, and Pope had gone to have gone to like maybe NYU or something together. So he recommended him and that's how he got the job. Uh (laughs) Also back. So, so back to the montage. So pretty much like you could tell, you know, with that, with dark man. And then when you uh, fast forward to the first Spider-Man, right. 
Yeah. You know, when he, when he gets bit and he's like, he goes into his room, he takes yeah. his shirt off, then he, then he like falls off, yeah, he's in chills, and it goes, and then you see, you know, almost like what happened with Peyton and Darkman. You see, like the, the lecturer, he's kind of like lighting and firing off and the whole DNA stuff transforming in them and all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, because that, but that's the sort of thing that, because I mean, I think he, because yeah, there's a lot of, you know, because there's a lot of 30s expressionism in this movie, right? Like, I feel like because the source, I mean, there's no source material, but because of the source, the idea for, you know, like the, like the, the ideas that this movie are rooted in is like, is, is like movies from the 30s. So mm. I feel like he was like, this is what I want to do. I want to, you know, you know, like this is a universal movie. I want to dig into this whole sort of, uh, you know, this whole sort of, you know, universal monster vibe, this whole Todd Browning freaks vibe, this, uh, you know, this sort of whole, you know, this is very classical in its construction. And part of that was he wanted to do this sort of orchid mon- montage sort of thing, because he's like, this is a way to express, you know, cause like, this will be how I express character in this movie. And I will, you know, and I, cause you know, cause he just wants very clean visual things because that's how he thinks while also, you know, slap people on the back of the head. But, uh, but anyway, most of that stuff got cut out of the movie and that's a shame because it would have been super cool. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, do you think Sam Remy would ever release a new director's cut of this? It's not, does, doesn't exist. Well, I mean, so like that I can get into that story. Uh, <laughs> like, so there's a very interesting editorial story. Like, so, this movie has basically three sort of editors on it, right? The first editor, I believe, is this all came out in an oral history that was in the, the Hollywood Reporter, I want to say, uh, like last year, two years ago. But so the original editor of this movie was the editor of The Road Warrior, who apparently very much did not get the vibe of the movie. And supposedly uh, wanted didn't really understand it and wanted to cut it into a romance, which oh no, yeah. that would have been horrible. Yeah, which does. And so then the studio brought in their own guy. They brought in Bud Smith, who I do not, you know, I do not besmirch Bud Smith at all. Bud Smith is the editor of you know a lot of Friedkin movies. He cut Sorcerer, which is a masterpiece, and the editing in that movie is incredible. And if you guys ever want to talk about Sorcerer, I will come on and talk about Sorcerer all day. But uh, uh, and he added Flashdance also. Yes, but yeah, he but he kind of but he was basically Universal's in-house fixer. Like they brought him in at that point in the movie. He's credited as like supervising editor. But so what he did was then he, you know, so they you know, so he told you know Ramy to you know leave. And then just give me some time to figure this shit out. And then he left. And then after they left, he went and cut down the movie to like 80 minutes or something. And, uh, and they did not, you know, and it did not necessarily test well what he says, you know, and basically uh, I think Danny Elfman. And so what they, a lot of what they ended up cutting out was like the crazy eye shit. They cut out, you know, the dude jumping naked onto the coins. You know, like this is all stuff that like test audiences didn't really respond to. Uh, but like Danny Elfman in this Hollywood reporter thing said like, you know, all the weird, crazy shit is the stuff that made the movie. And this is the stuff that they were cutting out of the movie. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they weren't really happy with it necessarily because like, cause they tested Raimi, you know, cause they had tested Raimi's original cut. It didn't do great, but it, you know, but it did what it did. And then they kept testing it, you know, like these new versions and then it, uh, and then it kept testing worse and worse, <laughs> but they were like, ah, we're not gonna, we're not going to deal with that. You know, it's like, but you know, it's like, we're not going like, this isn't avid. It's really hard. You don't have just cut old cuts just lying around that you can just dredge up. You know, it's like, this is, it would be really hard to assemble something else. So they're like, so after a certain point, they, they wash their hands of it or like, fuck it. It's like, we're just going to release, you know, what we got, uh, which Bud Smith says, like, he still stands by the choices that he made. He was just trying to make the movie not feel so stop and start, which I can imagine this movie feeling sort of episodic, you know? Yeah. Like, but because of, again, like, cause if you watch, the director's cut of army of darkness. Uh, I don't know if you, you know, ever saw that, but like, it's just all the, it's like a Peter Jackson movie. Now it's like, it has, you know, more bits than it needs. And like, in in Bruce Campbell's book, you know, he said there was, you know, like when they were cutting that movie, Dino De Laurentiis were be like, here's this bit, you know, like this bit where six skeletons explode, you know, it's like that, that's too much. You know, just, just have three skeletons explode. And they were like, Dino, we got to have six. And he was like, why? And they're like, because we need them. And I believe that's how, you know, Campbell describes it. And it's like, well, that's, yeah. And it's like, you just don't need to have that many skeletons explode all the time. It's like, you get the gist. But sometimes sight is good. But anyway, so, so, so the one guy quit, the, the road warrior guy quit. Bud Smith was like, okay, I'm done. He left. And then, the guy who was the assistant editor on the movie, who you may have heard of him now, is he's a guy named Bob Morosky. He is now Sam Sam Raimi's editor. He has been Sam Raimi's editor for years. He has an Oscar for cutting the Hurt Locker. Wow. Uh, and now he's you know he was so he was the AE on this movie, and he came in and said, "Hey." there's a better version of this movie than what we're locking now. So what they did was the movie was supposed, they were supposed to cut negative on the movie on Monday. So over the weekend, over the next 48 hours, they recut the movie without telling anybody. Oh shit. And put, say, they say nine minutes back in the movie of shit that they thought was important. Now, I don't know how much of that, you know, that optical Vorka pitch stuff went back into the movie because again, presumably, you know, like, because that has, you know, that has to go to an optical printer or whatever. That's old school. They can't, you know, like they can't throw that together, (laughs) but just weirder stuff in the movie went back in because of this. (laughs) And then, so after 48 hours of, you know, just this madcap doing, you know, like putting weirdo rhythms back in the movie, uh, they, they, cut, they lock negative, you know, they, they, you know, they, they cut negative and then, you know, they, they sent it off. And again, like a negative cutter is the guy who takes the original prints and matches it to these, uh, to these things like manually. Like, so he takes the original film strips and that, cause you know, like, cause with film you're dealing with, you know, like duplicates that they have. So, so somebody, and that stuff, you know, gets run through a bunch of stuff. So it gets all beat up. So they, they end up copying the original negative to that. And then they have, so it's like real, it's a real meticulous process. So it's like real finicky. So, you know, it's like, if, if you fuck it up, you, you know, you can like fuck up a lot of stuff up. 
So yeah. they couldn't, and it, so it's time consuming. So after they did that, they couldn't do it again. Like they couldn't go back. So after the studio, so the, so then after the movie got mixed, the studio saw this and was like, what the fuck did you do? <laughs> but they couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> because critic screenings were like, you know, in, in, you know, in the next two, couple of days after that point. So there wasn't anything they could do. They had to release this movie that got smuggled out. But I mean, it worked out. It yeah. worked out because it was, even though it was R rated, it was number one at the box office the weekend of August 24th. It grossed 48.8 million off of a $60 million budget, and critics loved it. Yeah. And, yeah. and then again, and then Bob Morosky became Sam Raimi's guy to this day. I mean, it, it's something to say about having your editor involved from the beginning that understands what the director is trying to do, what understands what the writers are trying to do. When you bring someone in at the last minute, you don't always get that unless they have a good relationship with those creators. Exactly. I mean, yeah, editors are the unsung heroes, like the dynamic duo to the directors. I mean, Spielberg could tell you all day his editor saved Jaws. It's like, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, editors, uh, yeah, they can definitely save your movie. Yeah. But yeah, so. But that's the thing, because Raimi has very particular rhythms, and it seems like Morosky is very good at mimicking those rhythms, or you know, he's very in tune with those. Because like, because that's the thing, because Raimi's stuff is like again talking about cleanliness. Raimi's stuff is not clean. It's very like there, there's a lot of like interesting like little stop-start sort of things in his in his cutting patterns. Oh yeah, which totally. is you know, which like there's a lot of repeated motions and a lot of uh, like a lot of expansion of time and, and it really uh, like some, and a lot of like, um, uh, like weird, like, uh, like under, uh, is it, uh, like undercranked like shots. Oh yeah. <laughs> undercrank shots next to overcrank shots and, you know, yeah. and, like weird and like audio dropouts and stuff. Yeah. And just like a really active sound palette and everything. But, yeah. uh, Anyway, yeah, so so uh, anyway, uh, then after this guy shows up, he's like, hey, by the way, do you know who Robert... So anyway, back to Robert Strack's office. <laughs> oh, wow. We still have Robert Strack's office. <laughs> back yeah. to Robert Strack's office. He's like, by the way, have you ever heard of this guy, uh, Robert G. Durant? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I've heard of him. Uh, you know, like drugs, racketeering or whatever. And he's like, this guy might want that memorandum. You don't know. He's like, he's a bad dude. He's after this. And she's like, he's like, well, like, okay. And we cut, <laughs> we cut there. That whole thing with the light cutting out that we talked about earlier happens. Uh, they're like, you know, he does that awesome thing where he's, where he's like, now we know it's about the light. And he does that thing where he walks into that one beam of light and it just cuts off. Oh, uh, yeah. It's very thirties old school shot right there. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. It's like, it's really, you know, it's really expressionistic sort of thing. Uh, apparently on the commentary, Bill Pope says, you know, Ramey said, Dude, give me a Captain Kirk. And that's what he did. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, that's, um, but then immediately after that, he's like, you know, like at least now we know it's the lights that makes this, you know, like that'll break the 99 minutes. And then right after that fucking Durant shows up <laughs> yeah, with the goons. Yeah. With yes. the goons, one Stop. of them. Yeah, so we should jump to the end of the movie. I, everyone should go watch this movie. Uh, we're not going to spoil it, but 
how how does the movie end that sets us up for two more sequels to two sequels to the movie? It ends with Bruce Campbell saying, I am Dark Man. <laughs> <laughs> Which really disappointed me with the directed video sequel because I was waiting to see Bruce Campbell's face flashed all over the post for the second. Like, wait a minute. It was Bruce Campbell at the end of the first one. What the hell? So why 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 did they have Bruce Campbell saying that? Uh, well, because a because they were like maybe if we got to do a sequel, then Bruce you know would get to be in you know my movie because he's because that was a thing that Raimi wanted to do a lot at the time. He also wanted him to be the lead of Prime Wave, but yeah. uh, studios did not want that. They wanted somebody who was more commercially viable, which the guy who they got, I don't know, like that guy, like I, that guy is like, he's apparently like a well-regarded theater actor now, but uh, at the time, I don't think he really had done much of anything. Mm. Uh, I don't remember who. He, yeah. yeah. And plus like, you know, just to set up the cameo relationship, you know, into, into the Spider-Man trilogy. Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, oh where there's, well, there's a Remy movie. We got to see a Bruce Campbell. Campbell. Yeah, you also have to see Ted Raimi, which is like, I don't think Ted Raimi's in Doctor Strange, which surprises me, to be honest. No. I do need to watch it again because he probably slotted him somewhere for like a hot I haven't second. seen anybody see, like, because, you know, because you see Pizza Papa, you see the classic, yeah. uh, which, uh, if you guys don't know, the classic is Sam Raimi's Delta 88 Oldsmobile which yep. uh, is, you know, it's the car from the evil dead and it's in every Sam Raimi movie. Like, yep. And it was in Dr. Strange. Yeah. <laughs> it's in, yeah. It's in Dr. Strange when they're walking by in the place where, where it's all foggy or whatever. Like it's yeah, it, the... Raimi is, is not in Dr. Strange. Yeah. Oh, boo. It's, just floating. <laughs> it's just sort of floating in the sky and they sort of just walk by it. Uh. Slowly spinning. But, uh, when I saw Snowpiercer, Ted Raimi was in the same theater. Uh, nice. Yeah. That's but, <laughs> but, uh, so is this, so is, okay, well, um, right, all right, so uh, the, uh, the right, rated ratings for in-flight goes, um, ass on a couch, it's a good watch, you'll, you're, you're, you'll love it. Um, Having it on in the background, uh, you in and you in, you out, you kind of watching, you kind of not. And the worst of offenses is I will probably go outside than stay in and watch this movie. So I mean, as for me on couch, yeah, to watch this one. Like I've I've loved this movie for thirty years. You know, it's like. <laughs> All right, what you got, Jim? I'm torn between ass on the couch and have it on in the background. It is the perfect movie to have on in the background while you're doing putting together decks for work. I'm going to throw <laughs> that out there. Uh, I do have a bit of ADHD. And so some of the movie doesn't move fast enough for me. And so that's why I wouldn't necessarily be sitting on the sofa because I can get easily distracted during those scenes. Like um, parts when he's, you know, when he's saying that they took his hands, those parts are great. I mean, yes, yes. Some of the, like, that's why it's the perfect movie to have on when I'm putting together a presentation for work, because when I get stuck, I can look up at the film and I know that there's going to be a good scene. Like they took my hands 
and I will be thoroughly entertained. Um, so I like, yes, I I would. Yeah. Yeah. You're in a, yeah, you're in a mill. Yeah. (laughs) But, but we, what we can, uh, unanimously say that if you have not seen this movie, if you overlooked it and, you know, you heard about this film from someone, watch this movie. It's, uh, you will enjoy it. Like, I think, like, in a lot of people's Raimi rankings, I think my, I rank it higher than some people because I I don't, because I mean, like, because I think some people rank Quick and the Dead above this. And it's like, I like Quick and the Dead, but like, yeah, you know, no, but th- this is much really, better than Quick and the Dead. Yeah, it's much better. Much better. I mean, Quick and the Dead had a better cast, but, you know, Darkman is definitely a better like, like, this is my, like, Darkman's my guy. You know, like, old Peyton, he's my, he's my special dude. <laughs> like, I like watching him hang out and go, ah! You know, <laughs> his teeth, you know, it looks like the, a mix. Yeah, and, I mean, in what movie do you see the main character like getting into a shouting match with a cat, you know, and like arguing. You think I'm so kind of freak? Huh? Yeah. 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 dance, yeah. yeah, while wearing a little funny little hat. I can wear a funny little hat. She yeah, the yeah. I mean, pay five bucks. She I, the I, 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 yeah, I mean, I specify yeah. five bucks. You know, I'm just saying, Bruce Wayne would do nothing like that. No, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So, so there you have it. Uh, this this review is probably more about Rami and uh, the history of the movie than going into the movie, but it was totally worth it. Yes. So. Thank you so much, Philip, for joining. I always learn so much when I either get texts from you uh, or we have these conversations and we all need to go to a movie soon. That's right. Yes. But everybody, yeah, you know, yeah, go Go see RRR if you can. Yeah, I probably can't. Yeah, side note to everyone. And I've told everyone in the office today, because that was my Sunday night movie, uh, that they need to go watch RRR. Um, it's on Netflix right now. I actually stayed off my phone and computer while watching it. For me, that is a big deal. So. All right. Yeah, that, that's a huge asshole couch. For- <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's three hours long, but it's, you know... Yes. But yeah. but it's but it earns it. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Unlike well, well, until uh, next week, guys, we wish everyone uh safe everything and uh Wear, keep wearing your fucking masks because now you could get uh monkeypox. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Here we go. Here we go. Don't fuck around. Yes. And, and don't wear just cloth masks either. Wear your N95s, guys. Yeah. Fuck around. Jeez. When I go to the movies, I wear an N95, a cloth mask over it, and then I and then I have my hoodie over my face. Yeah. The whole time. That's how you do it. Like that's not yeah. how you know, I'm not fucking around. Or, or just or just wrap yourself up like dark man. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Peace. He gets it. Yeah.